Galatians chapter 3. We'll consider together Galatians 3 and have come in our journey through this book to the last half of this chapter of Paul's epistle to the Galatians, Galatians chapter 3. We have a dense text before us today, dense in the sense of difficult, it's challenging, and I'd like us to just think through it here by just hearing the words, and we will labor through it, but there's so much here, so much that is rich for us to gain in our faith. Galatians 3 verse 14 concludes this section saying that Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham, will come to the Gentiles so that we might receive the promised Spirit through faith. Paul continues with a human example in verse 15. Even with a man-made covenant, no one annuls it or adds to it once it has been ratified. Now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say, and to offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one, and to your offspring, who is Christ. This is what I mean. The law, which came 430 years afterward, does not annul a covenant previously ratified by God so as to make the promise void. For if the inheritance comes by the law, it no longer comes by promise. But God gave it to Abraham by a promise. Why then the law? It was added because of transgressions. Until the offspring should come to whom the promise has been made. And it was put in place through the angels by an intermediary. Now an intermediary implies more than one, but God is one. Is the law then contrary to the promises of God? Certainly not. For if a law had been given that could give life, then righteousness would indeed be by the law. But the Scripture imprisoned everyone, everything under sin so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. Now before faith came, faith in Christ, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. So then the law was our guardian until Christ came, in order that we might be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. For in Christ Jesus you are all sons of God through faith. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. Let's bow together before this passage and before our Lord and the teaching of the Spirit of God. Father, we need that ministry. We ask that the Spirit would make clear to us this challenging passage of Scripture. 
I pray that you will help me make as clear as I am able the meaning of this text. And I pray that by your Spirit you would apply these truths to us, though in some respects they are not applicable in obvious ways. They are applicable in the greatest of ways. As these verses, as this text points us to Christ, as the culmination of the new era in which we live and are privileged to serve and in which we stand as we head toward glory. I pray for your aid. I pray for those who know not Christ the Savior, that you would unveil their eyes and help them to see. Please work uniquely in their heart. For those of us who know you as Savior, may we labor faithfully in the Scriptures, responding to our calling to do so with confidence, with diligence, and with a sensitivity to our own heart's need today. Minister this grace to your church in the Word, we pray, through Jesus. Amen. To function skillfully in our world, we must understand the progressive nature of certain relationships. We don't think that much about it. It generally comes fairly intuitively. But life can get messy if we fail to recognize and navigate these developmental stages. Maybe one of the most easy illustrations for us is family. The parent-child relationship, at the first stage, parents are nearly in absolute control of their children. They move them around, and they they deal with them in in a really controlling sense for their own protection. But then they enter into that relational, progressive stage where the parents exercise Authority and children learn to obey, learn to respond to the direction, to the watch care, and to the teaching of parents. But then there comes, does there not, that stage of independence where the child enters into a new type or stage of relationships. It's still parent and child, but things really change in this stage of independence for the child. Now it gets messy. When a five-year-old or a 15-year-old tells mom and dad how things are going to be. And it gets messy when mom and dad seek to manage the everyday life of their 45-year-old child. We need to recognize where we're at in these stages. The final stage of the relationship, of course, is, is where adult children must extend care for their aging parents. And really, in some respects, many things turn entirely around in that relationship. It gets messy when children assume that responsibility too early. And it's ugly when they don't care enough to do so at all. Along these lines, just steering us to think in these stages of progressive developmental relationship, I want to lay out here a, a story, an image If we could imagine ourselves, and I'll let you define the parameters of this little story, but I I want you to pay careful attention because it's going to serve us, I think, throughout this message to understand this passage. I don't claim that it's ideal, but I think it's helpful. It's easily accessible to our understanding as we think of this progressive stages of relationship. Imagine once upon a time in a land far away of your choosing, There are two kings 
who arrange a marriage of the infant princess of one king to the infant prince of the other king. Now there is, as these two families agree to unite these two children, arranged marriage, this is already determined, they will, in a sense, promise then to their children that they will bring them together in this marriage and nurture them to that level. There's, at first, a stage, a childhood stage. And as the families are able to get together on occasion, the children are allowed to play innocently. This boy and this girl, that both families want them to come to be friends and just to enjoy life as kids together. And they get in trouble together, and they scrap, and there's this sort of childhood stage, and everybody is watching from a distance and thankful for it. But as this young man and this young woman mature, they come to a stage where things are going to have to change. Now as they come to more maturity, they're still not at the place of marriage, but it's not just purely childish friendship any longer. There's a stage where they enter where there's a new set of rules and they include sexual rules of sexual abstinence waiting for marriage. Servants of the court, of both courts, are assigned to watch over the couple during this period. And they fairly hover at all times, making sure that they are above reproach, this young man and this young woman, in this new stage of life. There's more rules, there's more restrictions. To navigate it well, they must see it as a temporary stage in their relationship. If this is all that there is to it, they won't understand it properly, they won't relate to it properly. It's intended to prepare them for marriage. And then that great day comes. And with grand ceremony, they take vows of lifelong fidelity to one another, uniting the two kingdoms as man and wife, and they commit themselves to be faithful to one another for life. Now on that day, with the establishment of that covenant, all kinds of changes take place, don't they? The relationship that they had to the rules in the last stage are over. There is now freedom for them to express their physical love to one another. And their relationship to their parents changes as well. It's a whole new day, a whole new directive. And to the guardians who hovered around them all the time, where are they? They're gone. They're no longer needed. And you can guarantee they don't accompany the couple on the honeymoon. It's over for those people. We don't need them any longer. And on the honeymoon, this new husband and wife talk, and they reminisce about each progressive stage of the relationship. And they go back and talk about when they were children, not having any clue what people were doing to them and where this was all heading, but laughing about the times they got in trouble and at times becoming sober as they considered how their families loved them and cared for them in the innocence of that stage. And they talk through the other stages and they talk about their irritations with the guardians who were always hovering and watching over them. And they talk then about the culmination, the strategic function of these stages of relationship that bring them now to marriage. Just let that image set in your minds. Let it sit there, let it 
soak, we'll draw back to it. But moving from there, let me say that our growth in the Christian faith is enhanced by learning to recognize and appreciate the stages of salvation history that lead to our trust in Jesus Christ as Savior. This is tough for Western minds. We need to think historically. We need to think backwards, not just to the present day and forward. But thinking of this couple, their marriage is most important. That's what's, that's what's all important, but the backstory builds deeper appreciation for what they have. As Christians, what matters is our salvation by trust in Jesus crucified and risen. But there is an awesome backstory. A story of progressive stages of salvation history and the roots of our faith and the spiritual vibrancy with which we treasure Christ are enhanced as we come to know and appreciate God's progressive plan of redemption. Now the Gentile Christians to whom Paul writes were in danger of misunderstanding the significance of these progressive stages. The Galatians needed fresh appreciation for where they stood on the timeline of salvation history. In fact, they were being tempted to revert to an earlier era. and That was not going to prove to be an innocent mistake. It would subject them to the curse of the law. A stage they were no longer in. And so Paul is pleading with them to recognize this and to resist those false teachers that had come in to draw them back to an earlier stage in the relationship of salvation. And so in chapter 3 and verse 1, Paul says, O foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? It was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. I preach the message of Christ crucified and risen to you. Let me ask you only this then. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Did you revert to the stage of Mosaic law and seek to qualify yourself before God by fulfilling the requirements of the law? Is that what happened? Do you not remember that the Spirit of God washed you clean and gave you new life? You were redeemed when you responded to a message. To a word that you trusted. Verse 11 of chapter 3, it's evident then that no one is justified before God by the law. For the righteous shall live by faith. He stresses in verse 13, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us, for it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree, so that in Christ Jesus, united in faith to Him, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles, so that we might receive the promised Spirit through faith. We, the Gentiles, the children of Abraham, by faith in the gospel. Now at chapter 3 and verse 15, Paul begins to steer his readers to grasp the significance of where we stand on the timeline of salvation history. And he says, first of all, that the era of God's covenant of law through Moses did not displace God's covenant of promise to Abraham. 
So we think of first comes God's promise to Abraham in salvation history, and later comes the law to Moses on Mount Sinai passed on to Israel. The era of the covenant of law does not displace God's covenant of promise to Abraham. That is the burden of verses 15 to 18. Let's work through them. We'll do so fairly quickly. Verse 15, to give a human example, let me illustrate, he's saying, from everyday life, even with a man-made covenant, no one annuls it or adds to it once it has been ratified. Is that true? Man and a woman covenant to unite in marriage until they are parted by death, and a jealous rival comes along and says, you've got a divorce right now because I don't like this relationship. You say, sorry, that's not how it works. It's really not a matter of public opinion. The covenant has been established. It is in place, and your desire to this end really doesn't matter. Right? Somebody can't come along and decide you're not married because they don't want you to be. It can't annul a covenant. A man dies and his will is read to the children around the table by an attorney and one of the children speaks up after the will is read and said, well, that all sounds fine and good, that's wonderful, but one thing I'd like to add, I, I want dad's new car. And the, what's the attorney going to say? I'm, I'm sorry, it just doesn't work like that. You don't just come in and just add what you want to this will, this testament it stands as it is. When people enter covenant or establish a will, no one can come along and annul it or change it. If people act with such integrity, if there's such confidence in the work that we do with one another, do, is God any different? Does He act with less integrity? Verse 16, now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say, and to offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one, and to your offspring, who is Christ. I'd like to meet the person that read that for the first time and understood it. That's, that's a tough statement. He's going somewhere with this, just we'll, we'll be patient with him. But he employs a method here, a biblical interpretation that was common among rabbis in his day. I'm not going to take the time to explain it or to defend this kind of use of the Old Testament. It's legitimate, but what he's simply saying is that God established a covenant with Abraham. The central feature of that covenant was God's promise to give Abraham offspring. That promise was above all else a promise.